You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, September 6, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Let me uh, ask you a question that stopped me in my tracks earlier this week. It's an occupational hazard of mine to read articles, to read things written by other pastors and writers and They ask rhetorical questions in there, just like we'll do on Sunday morning sometimes, and I won't actually personalize them when I read, because I'm just reading the article. I'm so used to what he's doing, I'm not thinking about it, but I didn't get the option this week as I was reading an article written by a man named Marshall Siegel. Towards the beginning of the article, he asked this question, when was the last time you were mesmerized by Jesus? That was the question. I could have read it a thousand times over the years and kept reading to see what he was going to say about it, but this time I stopped. I feel like it was the Holy Spirit that just stopped me and said, why don't you answer the question? When was the last time you were mesmerized by Jesus? As Siegel continued to write, he'd ask a similar question another way. Does Jesus captivate your heart? And this is a pre-COVID pre-2020, pre-election, non-election cycle year article. It's an older article. and Just thinking of all the things that have captivated our collective attention, our collective desire, our collective heart. I couldn't just skip past it, and so I had to sit and think. When was the last time I was mesmerized by Jesus? And does he really captivate my heart? As Siegel continued to write, he made it very clear that If our hearts are not mesmerized by Jesus, if Jesus isn't captivating our heart, it's not because there's anything missing in him. It's not because there's a deficiency in him somewhere. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. If we're not captivated by him, it's not because there's a deficiency in him. And as he kept writing, here's what he said. He said, Jesus radiates the beauty and the worth of God, embodying infinite wisdom, infinite justice, infinite strength and love, perfectly and forever. Jesus carries every continent, every planet and galaxy with less than a pinky, with just the sound of his mouth. Seven billion people will take their next breath because and only because he gives it to them. There's more power in him than in all of the waves and all of the oceans. There's more wisdom in him than in all the world's universities. There's more purity in him than the finest diamond. There's more courage in him than the bravest soldiers in the fiercest of wars. There is more gentleness in him than in a mother with her newborn child. There is more justice in him than in any human court or judge. There's more love in him than we have ever asked or known or felt. And that power, that wisdom, that love, that radiance came to earth and died for you, making peace by the blood of his cross. And yet, if we're really honest... We yawn about it. I yawn about it. 
When was the last time you were mesmerized by Jesus? Is your heart captivated by him? Or have you become so accustomed to him that you've forgotten what it was like to not be able to see him? That was the question. Have we become so accustomed to him that we've forgotten what it was like to have the windows, the eyes of our heart literally closed with blackout curtains to his glory and his peace and his beauty and his justice, blind to his purity and love? Have we forgotten what it was like before, Paul said, God said, let light shine out of darkness and shone into your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of his Son? Siegel would go on to bring his article towards a close by saying, when you open the Bible looking for Jesus, remember, not everyone can see him like you can. And if we knew what we had been given, if we were captivated by it, maybe we wouldn't take it for granted the way we do. Maybe we wouldn't yawn. We would rejoice. We tremble and we gaze at him in his word. This morning, as we open God's word together and and seek to see Jesus as we do every time we're together, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to remind us of what it is for the first time or the first time in a very long time of just what he has given us in his son. So let me pray for us as we begin to open up his word. Father, In the time that we have left together this morning, I just ask that you do the miracle that only you can do in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, wherever we are this morning, here in this room, here in our our homes, on our sofas, wherever we are, and you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to make this a moment where we don't take you for granted. We don't take you, your kindness, your grace, your power, your glory, your wisdom, or your kingdom for granted. Lord, we're asking this morning that you would You would let us rejoice as you give us a fresh glimpse of yourself in your word. And we ask this morning as you give us a a fresh glimpse of your kindness to us in your son, as you open up our eyes anew, that you then would send us out from this place this morning to live a life that has no explanation apart from you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In, In Cairo, Egypt... Up until 2016, at least, there was a small, dusty, untended-to gravesite in an out-of-the-way location in a large cemetery that you would never even realize was there on the grounds unless you were specifically looking for it. And that grave had a very small tombstone marking it as the final resting place of a man named William Borden. Have you ever heard the name William Borden? William Borden was the eldest son, the heir apparent to the Borden Milk Company back in the 1920s. Now, back then, in the early 1900s, the Borden Milk Company was one of the largest companies in the United States. It was one of the wealthiest families in the United States. And no one would have expected this kind of grave for that kind of man. But here's what happened. Prior to his freshman year at Yale University, 
Borden's parents sent him out on what was commonly known back then as a grand tour. Families would often cross the ocean and spend a year traveling throughout Europe and throughout Asia, seeing famous sites, going to famous libraries, studying things as a collective unit. Today, we might call it a gap year for some students in between high school and college. And Borden's family sent him out on a grand tour with a man named Walter Erdman. Erdman had been a graduate of Princeton Seminary. He was a pastor and he was a missionary. And in this grand tour, he took William Borden to places in Japan, China, India, Egypt, Syria, and Turkey. And something began to happen in William Borden's heart as he traveled to all these places, met all of these people, and went to all these missionary outposts around the world. As he would write home to his family about what was going on, what he was seeing, what he was learning, what he was feeling. You can imagine it takes a long time for a letter to cross the ocean, come back to them in response. And one time when he was in Rome towards the end of his year-long journey, he received a response from his father after Borden had written a letter back home telling what he had seen and what he was feeling and that there were things stirring in his heart as he would go to all these different Christian outposts. And his dad pleaded with him in a letter that he received in Rome, said, please don't make any life decisions like that until you're at least 21 years old. Later, before his father will pass, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes, his father would let him know that if he was to pursue any of these things that were stirring up in his heart, he could rest assured he'd have no place in the family business moving forward. Borden's biographer has a piece of another letter that he received while he was on his grand tour from a close friend. As Borden was writing him, telling him what was going on, what he was seeing, what was happening in his heart, his friend wrote him a letter pleading with him to not throw his life away. And while he was on that grand tour, that great journey that year, William Borden took his Bible that he traveled with, he opened it up, and on the inside of his Bible, what's called the flyleaf, it's these pages that are often empty. I've got this one, I've had it for a long time, I've pasted stuff in there that I read and I remember, and in his flyleaf of his Bible, as he was finishing up that great trip, William Borden wrote the two words, no reserves. I'm holding nothing back before the Lord. No reserves when it comes to him. And when he got back from that grand tour, he did go to Yale, where he would spend four years. And his freshman year, he began a Bible study with four other students, male students. By the time William Borden was a senior, a thousand of the 13 registered students at Yale were a part of some extended study that was born out of what he began as a freshman there at Yale. As a sophomore, William Borden started the New Haven Rescue Mission. In one year, 14,000 men attended a gospel meeting, 17,000 received a meal, and 8,000 found a place to sleep, and he used his own money to start it. If you've ever wondered what young people did before phones and Facebook and Playstations, he was a sophomore at Yale, where he was the president of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. By graduation, his father had already passed, and he was already told by his father if he was to continue the, the things that were stirring in his heart, he would have no place in the family business. But rest assured, when Borden graduated from Yale, he was offered some of the top jobs in America. Being one of the brightest students graduating from Yale from the family like his, he had the world at his fingertips, and he turned them all down. Because while he was in college, the trajectory of his heart was set. And in that same Bible, he wrote two more words. No retreats. No reserves. 
No retreat. Borg would go on to Princeton Seminary. He'd study under J. Gresham Machen, where he would graduate with the highest honors. And do you know what he would do the entire three and a half years that he was at Princeton Seminary studying? Every single Sunday, William Borden, unbeknownst to the people that he was going to, taught a Sunday school class at the local African Methodist Episcopal Church. They had no idea who he was. But he spent every Sunday teaching those children the gospel, giving them a bigger picture of what was possible. And it was while he was at Princeton doing that, that the Lord crystallized in his heart the calling that he had begun to stir years before. Borden wanted to spend his life to go and reach an unengaged people group, a Muslim people group in north-central Gansu province of China. Many times his biographer recorded that when he would talk about it, and people would ask, why would you go there? There are so many other places to be able to go. Borden would say, if ten men are carrying a log, and nine of them are at the little end, and one is at the heavy end, and you want to help out, which end are you going to go lift on? So on December 17th, 1912, William Borden set sail for Cairo, where he would spend the extended season learning Arabic and growing in his understanding of Arabic. He boarded that ship with a Syrian family. He, he shared a, a, a space on the ship with a family from Syria. He then lived with that family from Syria in Cairo. While he was in Cairo, getting a, a better grip on his Arabic to go and reach this particular group of people, he began a, a tract, a gospel distribution process there in Cairo, Egypt, and would preach on the sidewalks there in Cairo in his learning of Arabic in a Quranic style. But here's the thing. Being so close to the people of the region also meant being very close to their diseases. And so 90 days into his stay in Cairo, William Borden contracted cerebral meningitis. 19 days later, April 9th, at the age of 25, he died. And the heir apparent to one of the largest companies in America at the time, was buried in a hand-nailed, simple wooden coffin with a piece of concrete on top of it. And in the days before he died, in that same Bible, he wrote two more words, no regrets, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. On that simple concrete slab, along with his name and his dates of life, there was this statement, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. That's a man who had been mesmerized by Jesus, whose heart had been captivated by Jesus. He's a historical example of the very thing Jesus is trying to get across to those who have ears to hear in the parables we're looking at this morning. If you've been with us at all through the COVID, the summer season, really, we've been taking time each week to look at a number of the different parables that Jesus has, has taught about his kingdom and about him as king and what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And just to give you a heads up, we've got one more week with it. Next week will be our last week looking at some of these parables, and then we're going to jump back into 1 Samuel. But this morning, we have before us two very short and two very simple parables. But it's two short, two simple parables that together Jesus intends to drive home one meaning. 
He intends to drive home to those of us who will hear what the source of a life lived is that can't be explained apart from him. These two parables together are meant to drive home the surpassing value of treasuring Jesus and his kingdom above all things, what it looks like to be captivated and mesmerized by him, what it is to have and to be driven to have a life lived like the one of William Borden. So Jesus would say this in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So it's okay to read it like a human at first and go, who doesn't love the idea of buried treasure? It's a great story. It would have been something very familiar to Jesus' hearers at the time, even though it's unfamiliar to us. We, we don't talk much of and go out on many searches for buried treasure, although some of our most favorite movies are about that very thing, aren't they? So I had to look it up just for your own enjoyment. The largest hidden treasure discovered in American history, do you know, was discovered in 2014? I didn't know this. I had to go find it out. Have you heard the story? A husband and a wife from Northern California were walking their dog. And they were walking their dog along a dirt path. And in the dirt path, they saw something sticking up. When they went back to examine what it was, they kind of dug away, and it was an old tin can. And they began to dig to get the tin can out, and they discovered there were more tin cans with it. So they dug, and they got all the tin cans out. And every tin can that had been buried was filled with original gold coins minted in San Francisco between 1847 and 1894. You want to guess the value? 2014, right? You don't have to adjust for inflation. 2014. $10 million. One single coin in particular, there was something about its minting in the whole process. One particular coin in those cans was worth a million dollars in itself. Now, we all dream of those kinds of things, and we like movies of those kinds of things, but in Jesus' day, it was a little more common for something like that to happen. Remember, they had no banks. They had no stock markets. For the, the majority of people in his day, their, their wealth, their assets were tied up in their homes and their livestock and their agriculture and their land. But for the very wealthy, they would have a surplus of precious things, jewels, coins, things like that. And what they would do with many of those things is put them in a vessel, like an earthen vessel, and bury them somewhere on their land because at any point and at any time, a neighboring tribe, a neighboring village, a people may come and try to take over land. So you've got to get out quick. But they knew where those things were. So when things blew over, they could come back and get it. That wasn't the only reason those things happened, though. If you're familiar with your Bible, you may remember the story Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25 of a steward who took his master's money and buried it in the ground rather than investing it, putting it to work. Laziness sometimes was a reason why people would do things like this, but why it happened doesn't really matter. But in this parable, there's a man who's working. He's a laborer. He's doing his job. He's working the field. He's been hired to work in the field. And while he's working, he comes across this buried treasure. Now, we don't know the details of what the treasure was, that's not the most important thing to the story. The emphasis in this part of the story is on his response. It's in his joy, Jesus says, that he goes and liquidates everything he has so that he can buy that field 
in order to have that treasure. Now, if you're reading it with 21st century eyes and you're reading it like a human, there might be something that jumps up in your heart going, well, that seems kind of slippery, doesn't it? If he'd been hired by someone to work on his land and he comes across a treasure and he covers it back up and goes and gets the money he needs to come back and buy that land, that doesn't seem super ethical, does it? Well, first off, this is not a parable on business ethics. But secondly, you're reading it with the wrong lens. According to rabbinic law, the very thing this man did was fully within his bounds to actually do. Jewish rabbinical law of the time clarified that the person who found such a treasure or anything like this was not obligated to alert the landowner if the object was found outside the threshold of his house. We don't have time for me to read it. It's fascinating. I had to go look it up myself. But they got so detailed that they would talk about someone finding something like a coin in between the boards of a threshold. And if it was in between the inside board and the outside board, it belonged to the homeowner and the landowner. If it was on the other side of the threshold board leading outside, not inside, it belonged to the one who found it. They detailed these things out to the nth degree. But then if you just keep reading it and read it logically... If that treasure belonged to the landowner who hired the laborer, and someone, laborer or anybody else, came to him and said, let me buy your land, what would he do before he sold the land? He'd go get his treasure. By implication in the story, the landowner didn't even know the treasure was there, because we don't even know how he came across owning that land. So this man isn't being unethical. He wasn't under any kind of legal or moral obligation to go and tell the landowner about it. So when you read it with these lenses, don't read it that way. And then just be really honest with yourself. If it was really kind of slippery, unethical practices, what would that guy have done when he found the treasure? I'd pick that thing up and put it in my bag and get out of there, right? You wouldn't go tell anybody and sell stuff. You just take it. All right, so don't let that trip you up as you're reading through the story. This man is out working in the field. He's not looking for treasure, but when he comes upon it, Jesus says it's from his joy that he goes and he sells everything. The emphasis is on the joy that floods in when he comes across something of so great a value. He found something of so great a value that it was worth it to him to sell everything he had in order to get it. That's the emphasis. But then Jesus adds on. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, obviously, you've got an immediate contrast between the men in the stories. The first one was a laborer who was just doing his job. This guy's a merchant. He's out looking for things. He is a, a refined seller, wholesaler of the finest goods, particularly pearls. In this day, pearls were what diamonds are today. They were the most priceless of treasures. And this guy is out looking for them. The first guy wasn't, just doing his job, came across a treasure. This guy is out looking for those things of priceless value. And one day, while he's out looking for them, he comes across the one 
He wasn't out looking for that one pearl. He was just out looking for things of priceless value to sell, but he comes across the one pearl. So great in value that he liquidates everything on the shelves, everything in his holdings in order to get that pearl. Unlike the other man, his life had been tied up in pursuing the most precious of earthly objects. That's what he was doing. And now he comes across one so precious that he'll do anything to have it. And the emphasis in this one isn't simply on the joy that wells up, that drives him to go do what he has to do in order to have the thing that becomes so great a value. The emphasis on this one is the over-the-top fulfillment of the search. He had been on a search for the finest things, and he found something beyond his wildest imagination. The emphasis is on the preciousness of the object. And so in taking the two together, how how do we begin to understand the the main emphasis, the, the primary thrust of what Jesus is trying to communicate? Well, to really grasp it and understand it, we, we can do it best by making sure we don't fall into the two primary ditches that people tend to fall into when reading these parables. And the first one is simply this, and I'll be pretty blunt about it. You and I are not the treasure being sought or the pearl being found. That is one of the first ditches the church has historically fallen into in trying to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And I don't know exactly when it happened. I imagine it happened as early as when people started retelling the stories of Jesus. Unchecked pride. Deception. Mixed together for bad teaching. Led humanity and the church at some point in its history to begin to read these parables and go, wow. I must be such a treasure that Jesus would come and die for me. I must be so great that he would come and do this. But that's not what the parable says. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus himself said he came to die to ransom his enemies. God has been telling Israel throughout time that it's not because of anything in you that I'm doing anything. It's not because you're so special. It's not because you're so great. It's not because you're so numerous. It's not because of anything in you, but it's, it's my great name and glory. Somewhere along the line in our own pride and our own desire to see things a certain way, we begin to misread this thing. We're not the treasure. We're not the pearl. Jesus was quite clear when he began the parable, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and its king. This is the treasure. This is the pearl. I love how John Bloom talks about the reality of how we read these things. He was writing an article about interpretation, and he said lenses, and you can think about contact lenses, glasses. He said lenses are extraordinary, powerful things. We interpret our reality depending upon the way we see it. And if something is wrong with our seeing, if something is wrong with our lenses, we won't see what's real. We'll see a distortion of what's real. 
This has happened for centuries in the life of the church and coming to Jesus' teaching. See, taking in the full context of all that God has revealed in his word, these parables simply unpack what it looks like when Jesus becomes for you a treasure chest of joy. These parables just make real for you what it looks like in your heart when Jesus becomes for you something exceeding all value. So precious to you, so valuable to you that everything else can go in order to have him. So valuable to you, so precious to you that you find delight in trusting in him. You find delight and joy in obeying him. You find delight and joy in turning from anything that would seek to belittle him. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, the kingdom of God that where Jesus is ruling and reigning is so valuable that losing everything on earth while gaining him is a joy-filled or joy-fueled trade. That's the point. The focus and the emphasis of what Jesus is getting across to those who have ears to hear is the value of his kingdom the worth of having him rule over you and for you in all things. The worth and the value of having the only one true, wise, omnipotent one ruling over all things sovereignly for his glory and your joy. When you have him, when this treasure is yours, you can know that in all things, regardless of circumstance, all things will be working together for your good and His glory. You can know with certainty that in the end, this king and this kingdom is going to triumph over all evil. As we saw on Friday in the briefing in Romans 16, you can know for certainty when you have Him, when He is your king and You have a place in his kingdom. A day is going to come when he is going to triumph over all evil and you will stand on the neck of evil itself. This kingdom and this king is the real treasure. And if it costs you everything, Jesus is saying he's worth it. In his joy, Jesus said. This man liquidated everything he had in order to have him. Now, now lest you just think this is the stuff of parables, this is the stuff of of good teaching moments, you just have to kind of keep reading the Bible, just keep reading the story. You might be familiar, we we talked about it earlier in the summer if you were with us, there was a, a day that came in Bethany When a woman named Mary, after her brother Lazarus had been resurrected from the dead by Jesus, and Jesus and his disciples gathered in the home of her her and her sister, that Mary came into the place where Jesus and his disciples were reclining together. And in John 12, John says, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I read that because... 
In John chapter 12, verse 3, this expensive ointment John talks about, that word expensive is the exact same word Jesus uses in the parable when he talks about a pearl of great value. Great value and expensive are the exact same word in the original language. They're just translated to fit the stories differently. What Mary did made the disciples so nervous and Judas so upset, if you remember the story, that he got mad and he said, why would you do this? You should have sold that expensive ointment for 300 denarii and given it to the poor. Now, it helps to know that one denarius was the average day laborer's rate. So 300 denarii, you can imagine, is 300 working days' wage, a whole annual salary. For Mary, it might have very well been tied up in this ointment as a nest egg for her future. But what had happened? Mary saw Jesus as exceedingly precious, surpassingly valuable, that she literally poured her future on his feet. And in doing so, she demonstrated to everyone who was there what was most precious, most valuable to her. It's a heart captivated by Jesus, mesmerized by Jesus, the one in whom there was more power than all of the oceans on the earth, more wisdom than all the universities, more purity than the finest diamonds, more courage than the bravest soldiers, more gentleness than a newborn's mom, more justice than any human court, and more love than we have ever known. It was the one who would give his life for her, making peace by the blood of his cross. She's not the only one, though. If you just keep reading the story, keep reading the Bible, you'll come across a man named Saul, a persecutor of the church, a hater of the church, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a scholar of the Old Testament, one of the most respected and renowned teachers of the law in his day. And he will later write to the church in Philippi, saying, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I wonder, I wonder when Paul wrote that letter if the story of the merchant and the pearls was in his mind. I'm just conjecture. But that was the story of a man who spent his life amassing the most priceless things until he came across the one thing that surpassed them all. Paul had spent his entire life trying to amass the most precious things that he could imagine in his day. A pedigree and a performance before the Lord that surpassed all of his peers. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he was quite literally knocked off his horse by the one pearl of great value. 
And he had been spending his entire life amassing the finest pedigree and the finest performance. And he said, I count it all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. A heart captivated by Jesus. Mesmerized by Jesus. As one writer said, Jesus became to Paul both an infinitely priceless treasure to gain and a supremely precious pearl to know. So you and I are not the treasure. We're not the pearl. But on the second hand, if we're going to be careful as we understand it, we've got to watch the, the second ditch too. You might get the treasure right. You might get the right understanding. But here's the second place. For centuries throughout history, we, we tend to fall off the track. You can't buy this king. And you can't buy this kingdom. For centuries, people have interpreted these parables at different times in the life of the church to think, well, what do I have to do then in order to have this? They sold everything. They got rid of everything in order to buy this. What do I do to buy this kingdom and buy this treasure and buy this king? Friends, you can't buy this king. You can't buy this kingdom. The point of both of those men in the parable selling everything they had in order to gain the treasure was to show where their heart was in response to the thing of so value they came across. Jesus is trying to make the point that the kingdom of God is so valuable that letting go of everything while getting him and his kingdom is a joy filled exchange. You can lose everything with joy if you get him. In having him, knowing him, enjoying his forgiveness, the cleansing of your conscience through his blood, the adoption into his family, being made an heir of God and a co-heir of Jesus, being changed into his image and likeness from one degree of glory to another, being guided in all of your confusions, comforted in all of your sorrows, rebuked in all of your wanderings, preserved through all of your dangers, and brought safely home at last. All of that is what makes him infinitely precious. So that you could say with the psalmist, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, King Jesus, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say you are my treasure? You are the surpassingly valuable, priceless thing that has captivated my heart. You can't buy him. But you can have him as your king. All it takes is letting go of your grip on the treasures that your heart has been clinging to apart from him. Letting go of everything that is not him at the center of your heart's desire for satisfaction and clinging to him as the one true everlasting treasure. That's what the Bible calls repentance. 
The problem is something C.S. Lewis put his finger on so well, and you're probably familiar with it. Lewis said the problem with us receiving this treasure, letting go of everything that is not him and finding him exceedingly valuable, being mesmerized by him and captivated by him, the problem is we're just way too easily satisfied by other things. You may have even read it for yourself in The Weight of Glory that Lewis wrote. He, he said, you and I are so content sitting in the street making mud pies because we can't seem to believe that the offer of a holiday at the beach is really real. It's just too good to be true. And so we're far too easily satisfied. We satisfy ourselves with broken plastic toys from a a world in rebellion to the king. Broken cisterns, Jeremiah told Israel, they can't really hold water. And it makes no sense when infinite treasure and satisfaction is offered freely by him. So listen to him this morning. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, you who have no money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labors on what doesn't satisfy? Come, come to me. Trust me. I'm the treasure. I'm your treasure. I can satisfy your heart like no one and nothing else. Let me ask you, friends, what is the kingdom of God worth to you? You know the clearest way to find out how much you value something? The clearest way to find out how you value something is what you're willing to give up in order to keep it or have it. What's the kingdom of God worth to you? You can't buy entrance. You can't buy the king. You can't buy the kingdom. But it will cost you everything. But if you get him, what have you really lost? You realize that in the stories, in buying the field and in buying the pearl, those men really didn't make a sacrifice, even though they sold everything they had, because they got the one thing of infinite value. The great British theologian J.C. Ryle would say this about these stories. These two parables are, are meant to teach us that People who are really convinced of the importance of salvation, of the importance of Christ, will give up everything to have him in eternal life. Those who have truly seen the kingdom, those who have seen its value, those whose hearts have been made by the grace of God's spirit to see the value of the kingdom, the value of salvation, the value of our Lord Jesus Christ are ready to give up everything else for him. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. That, my friends, is the foundation of a life that has no explanation apart from Jesus. 
What's the kingdom of God worth to you? Are you captivated by Jesus? When was the last time you were mesmerized by him? Let me pray for us this morning as we begin to respond to God's word together. Father, we can take a couple of minutes to sit in stillness now. And I'm just going to ask that you would do the miraculous work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit. And you would give the eyes of our hearts, every heart here, every heart listening, you would give the eyes of every heart here this morning a fresh glimpse of the infinite value of your glory in the face of your Son. Enable us by your Spirit to see your Son as more precious, more valuable than anything our heart has clung to. Lord, it takes a work of your Spirit in our hearts, a a deposit of courage by your Spirit in our heart to let go of the things we've held so tightly to, the things of the world we've gripped onto to provide joy, to provide hope, to provide assurance, to provide satisfaction, to provide security, all the things that we've grabbed that are not you. To let go of them requires a courage that comes from you. And I ask this morning that you would give us so clear a sight of your Son that it wouldn't even be hard to let go. It's no sacrifice to gain you the treasure of infinite eternal value. Lord, I ask this morning for your glory, for our joy, you would do that work in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.